Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The earnings here in the United States continue to take the headlines, and it's Morgan Stanley this morning smashing estimates with investment banking revenue up 7%, trading revenue for debt trading and equity trading also smashing estimates and the stock up this morning by 1.8% in the pre-market. I'm pleased to say that joining us to react is Kate Moore, BlackRock Chief Equity Strategist. And on the financials so far, Kate, just to get your thoughts, I'll go through the single names and you can talk about the sector. Um, JP Morgan... They beat, they deliver a record profit, and the stock is down. Uh, we saw the same thing with Goldman Sachs. We haven't seen that with Morgan Stanley, but overall, we've seen really, really decent numbers. Yet a market that doesn't seem to be overly impressed. Why do you think that is? You know, I've heard a host of reasons why the market is reacting so uh, softly to what seemed like very, very strong numbers and, and very solid expectations for future earnings growth this year. You know, some of them are that deposit betas are rising a little bit i.e. that there's more competition uh, across the banks for deposits, and so they're having to pass on the benefits of higher rates um, to their customers. That might be one explanation. Some of it's been that guidance from banks uh, around future growth and loan growth has been a little bit lower. That might be one excuse. To be honest with you, I think the sector is in outstanding shape, and I've been kind of disappointed with how the market has reacted to these exceptionally strong numbers. I think that we need to stay long the financials, and particularly the large cap banks. Yeah, and uh, it, it remains one of my you know favorite picks throughout this year. Kate, to what extent is it a market that's just looking at the VIX pulling back down to a fifteen handle and saying, "Yeah, well done, great first quarter." You're not going to repeat it on the trading side at two Q. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, look. It, it takes some skill, though, to be able to really benefit from significantly higher volatility. We had these high vol days uh, and lots of plus and minus 1% intraday moves, much more so than we saw, of course, in 2017, where there was no movement. But volumes weren't huge. And so in order to really take advantage of it, I think you need some skilled traders and you need uh, some great relationships. So I wouldn't say it has to just be about the VIX in order to continue to benefit from the trading side. Is there an efficient frontier now? I mean, Kate, if we were to wax off theoretical uh, right now, is there a thing out there that's all curvy and stocks and bonds and I know where I want to be and maybe I even know what to do with my cash? Is Does that theory work still? I think we've had some sort of evolution in thinking about portfolio construction. What did we evolve to? Well, look, we, we've been in a period where it made sense to uh, hold a significant amount of debt and, and hold a significant amount of equity at the same time. If we are right about a sustained global economic expansion persisting for the next couple quarters, for the next couple years, that we're not kind of at the end of the cycle and that rates will continue to rise, we need to be pretty thoughtful about how we approach fixed income. Uh, you've heard it from us many times, but we prefer short duration. We certainly prefer, prefer you know, parts of the emerging market debt world uh, over some of the long duration uh, yeah. U.S. treasuries. But I know this sounds like I sound like a broken record because I'm an equity strategist, but I still strongly believe that equities are the place to be, even this late in the cycle, even if your returns are not going to be north of 20 percent this year. Kate, what's so important here is we forget about 
you know, CFA 101, like level one, I'm in a panic and I don't know what this means. You look at weighted average cost of capital. I'm looking at a major famous consumer durable, which will, you know, a staple almost. We'll leave it the name of it out. It doesn't matter. They've only got 9.1% debt. Mm -hmm. Their cost is modeled at 2.1%, which is a 0.2% a contribution to a weighted average cost of capital. This isn't in the theory books. No, that's right. And this is one of the the real challenges, I think, when you're looking forward and trying to put together forecasts, but then you use historical relationships and historic balance sheets and historic, um, you know, sort of corporate behavior as your guide. That's always this risk, whether you're thinking about asset allocation or whether you're thinking about kind of near-term returns of driving your car by looking through the rearview mirror. And so your point about debt being uh, relatively low, we've talked about this before, about how what a great job companies have done of terming out their debt and locking in low rates and you know how less sensitive they are and, and how healthy I think their balance sheets are relative to say where they were you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, we need to be careful about using history too much as a guide. So, Kate, what are you concerned about most of all? There's no big maturity wall coming up for many of these companies. As you say, they've turned out their debt quite effectively over the last couple of years and really locked in low rates. So what's the concern? You know, I really worry about risk appetite. We were talking about this in terms of trade and geopolitics. I think that's very present. You know, there were three things that came up last year consistently when talking to companies and talking to investors, both on the institutional and the individual side. And they were, uh, you know, major concerns about where valuations were, anxiety around that, uh, significant anxiety around politics and the impact that politics could have on, you know, market movements. And then I think there was a lot of concern that, you know, significantly higher interest rates we're going to, you know, be around the corner and, and impact companies' earnings. You know, here we are where the anxiety around valuations shouldn't really be there. We, we've compressed multiples, uh, you know, around the world. We're now at levels that look much more like their five-year averages. Um, you know, politics certainly has been in play, but most companies have been able to continue to operate as usual and are seeing strong growth despite the headline noise. And, you know, I as we were saying before, I'm not really concerned that significantly higher rates are going to have an impact on on earnings. Uh, you know, places I'm watching those small and mid cap, and I'm watching, you know, uh, in, in particular those companies that haven't been as smart or, or, or engaging in a new round of investment that is going to be financed by debt. Kate Moore, it's great to have you with us to get your thoughts. Thank you very much for giving your time to Bloomberg Surveillance on TV and radio through the morning. BlackRock's chief equity strategist. John Farrow at our studios, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. I'm Tom Keen at 99.1 FM Studios in Washington, D.C. John, just in the distance, I can see the Gucci store, which is always a good and uh, appropriate thing. Yeah. Here for the uh, World Bank IMF meetings as well. And also today, a panel with Luigi Zingales of the Booth School in Chicago. Luigi, one of the great jewels, which really folds into the modern debate right now, is a paper by Michael Bordo and Anna Schwartz of years ago on the Chicago history of traditional Keynesian economics. And it, the title of the paper was called ISLM and Monetarism. And what it amounts to is we set up a, a, a geometric structure of how all this economy stuff works in 1936 and 1939 with Hicks. And we dragged it forward to Milton Friedman. Neither of those parties, Hicks, 
Keynes, Alvin Hansen, or Milton Friedman at Chicago had to deal with trillion-dollar deficits. How does the fiscal debt fold in to our traditional economic models? I think they certainly did not have to deal with uh, a, a deficit of this size, but also they did not have to deal with the deficit of this side in a moment where the level of debt is so high and where the economy is doing uh, relatively well. So I think that uh, what is surprising is not uh, so much that we have a deficit. We had a huge deficit in 2009, was a bigger deficit, but that was uh, uh, in a difficult uh, moment, uh, uh, sort of uh, economically. And now we are um, nine years into an expansion and uh, the economy is doing relatively well. So I think that uh, increasing the deficit at this moment of the cycle with uh, this uh, level of debt coming in, might reduce the ability to do counter-cyclical fiscal policy when a recession will come. Can you say that a rising debt and deficit lowers the degrees of freedom that monetary authorities have, whether it's the Italian government or it's Chairman Powell? Does it, does it give you just less choice given an outside shock? Um, first of all, I will uh, differentiate between uh, uh, the Italian situation, the U.S. situation. The U.S. control its own currency, so they have a flexibility that Italy does not have. Sure. Uh, they, 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 this said, I think that uh, what I'm most worried about is the uh, limited ability of the fiscal policy. So when the next recession will come, and uh, one forecast I can make for sure, there will be a recession at some point. I don't know when, but there will be another recession. And we have limited ability to uh, intervene from a monetary point of view, because uh, in the typical <coughs> recession, right. uh, interest rate dropped by 5% a point. And uh, where is the space for the monetary policy to right. act? Luigi, let me bring in my colleague. He and I have been discussing the World Cup coming up in Russia. Is there a World Cup? Who will be there? I thought there is no World Cup. No, there's no World Cup. Well said, Luigi. Last night in the early evening, I'm talking Brighton-Tottenham Premier League football. Not the World Cup. With John Farrell. (laughs) John, I just don't get it. So let's bring in Mr. Farrell with more important items. Hey, Professor, great to speak to you again. Um, We're talking about exhausting fiscal policy. Let's talk about exhausting monetary policy. The, The Fed has made a move here in the United States in a way that the ECB really hasn't. And Professor, I look at Europe right now with some concern about the next downturn in Europe, and not so much on the fiscal side. A lot of people are concerned about that. But on the on the monetary policy side, with, with the deposit rate still as negative as it is, and the balance sheet as big as it is, as it is and growing. Yeah, I think that uh, if uh, the United States uh, uh, shouldn't cheer, Europe is in a worse situation because uh, there is no European fiscal policy to, to, to know of. And as you said, the monetary policy is uh, uh, basically zero interest rate. So there is not uh, very much room. Um, I think that uh, there is uh, still way to go in the uh, European expansion. So we hope that we don't have uh, a recession soon. But uh, yeah. if we had to add one, uh, it wouldn't look, look pretty. Well, Professor, the reason I bring this up is because arguably in Europe, we've seen peak growth in terms of the absolute levels of, of growth that we had at the back end of, of last year and the beginning of this year. And yet CPI 
is barely at one and a half percent. It's at one point three and got revised lower this morning on the continent. So the ECB's got a choice to make now, haven't they, Professor? They can either sort of have their credibility questioned and start moving before they get back to target, or sit here and wait. And ultimately, it might never happen. Yeah, I think that uh, the first thing they need to do is convince that uh, having a one point three percent inflation is too low. Uh, you know, in the uh, ECB website is still written that the price stability means to have an inflation below 2%. And, and some of the ECB board members say below but close to 2%. And, uh, but uh, others just think that uh, below 2% is fine. So I think that the first uh, job of Draghi is to convince them again that 1.3 is too low and something needs to be done. I, I looked, uh, Luigi, at where we are today. I want to save time for our panel today. And I guess I have to do that right now because you've got to get on with your IMF uh, day as well. Professor Zingales, it was a panel. You know, I was thrilled that Madame Lagarde's people called me up. The honor to do the panel with you and Laura Tyson of Berkeley and Mr. Harrington of Edelman. They're profoundly important folks, Edelman, uh, in the measurement of people's moods worldwide with the acclaimed Edelman Trust Barometer. But Luigi, I had no idea when I accepted this panel on trust and resilience, we would have the political discourse of the day. The trust seems to be evaporating towards a new populist state. Is it the same populism nation to nation, or is it really each culturally discreet? Of course, uh, there are many ways to be dysfunctional. There are many ways to be populist. Uh, and uh, I think that there is, however, a common theme. And the common theme is that uh, the elite that tend to be a globalized elite uh, does not appear to be trustworthy. I think that uh, uh, the lack of trust uh, is not fault of the people who don't trust us. <laughs> it's uh, our fault that uh, we don't appear and hopefully just appear, maybe uh, there is also some stumps, substance, but we don't appear as trustworthy as we should be, given right. the responsibilities that we are in charge with. John, I, I think that part of this is almost media exhaustion, where you and I are buffeted every single day by the next populist crisis or populist reality, and we almost become numb to it. Yeah, I'd have to say, have we seen a populist crisis yet? And I, and I asked that. Because we had the Brexit vote, and I don't see a crisis in the economy. And um, we've had the, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, walk into the White House, and I don't see a crisis in the economy. Quite the opposite. I'm just wondering whether we've actually seen that populist crisis that many people forecast, but ultimately hasn't materialized. I think he's building. If you have paid attention to the last uh, Italian elections, I think the results were quite uh, disruptive and uh, we don't know when we'll have a government. So I think that uh, uh, yeah. is building momentum in different places. And uh, I agree with you. We have not seen uh, the worst yet. And Professor, I think some people might say that maybe Italy without a, a government is, is, is a better place at the moment. <laughs> professor Luigi Zingales, University of Chicago, Booth School of Business professor in Washington, D.C. Uh, with Tom Keane.
Um, to get to the markets in the commodity market, it's been a rally that not too many people saw coming. It's certainly not at this magnitude, up by 8% on Brent year to date, up by almost 12% on WTI. To weigh in, I'm really pleased to say that Francisco Blanche has entered the studio, the head of global commodities and derivatives research for Merrill Lynch. Francisco, what happened this year that maybe some people weren't positioned for? Well, look, uh, I think I think we've had a, a meaningful reduction in uh, supply on on uh, driven by the cartel OPEC and, and Russia, um, and uh, importantly, we've had strong global growth, and that's led to a, maybe a faster than expected inventory withdrawal uh, as it relates to oil, and that's pushed uh, the price of uh, crude higher. That that's that's one one thing. Obviously, metals, uh, as you know, haven't performed as well, and there's another set of issues there. Uh, and and on the on the precious side, gold has had a nice run up because I think people are starting to get a little bit nervous about uh, policy tightening, uh, volatility is picked up, and that supported the precious. So there's different reasons driving yeah. commodity prices higher, but but in general, I mean the the the, the strong global growth and and the uncertainty about about uh, when it's going to peak have been driving the commodity complex. So we've got three things to work through. Um, one is on oil, and we'll do that first. And then the second part is these sort of idiosyncratic stories around metals like aluminum. And then the third part is ultimately what global policy means for a security, a product like gold. Um, let's start with oil, Francisco. The geopolitical risk premium that was injected into this market over the last couple of weeks seemingly is going to drain back out. Can we keep prices elevated once that geopolitical risk premium drains back out if you do believe it will drain back out well uh, first of all I, I think I think there's a little bit of a geopolitical risk but not a lot um, if you if you look at the uh, well again it depends if you call Venezuelan production falling geopolitical risk then yes you have geopolitical risk but I think that's been the main driver of uh, of prices moving higher on the supply side right you've had a, a cartel uh, cut collective cut and then you've had a collapse in Venezuelan production that really kicked off starting right around June July of last year and it's accelerated into uh, the start of this year and that's been a big driver of, of the uh, upward price moving oil prices um, so I think I think the geopolitical risk premium is, is relatively modest still uh, and prices could definitely push higher uh, if if that geopolitical risk uh, um, uh, becomes more prominent, but I, I do think we are going higher anyway. We have an eighty dollar target by uh, by the end of the quarter. We think we're going pretty much in a straight line to eighty. From here, uh, we have seasonal factors, we have uh, cyclical factors. There's a lot of reasons to believe that in the short run, in the next couple of months, oil prices are going to move higher. <clears throat> well, within that is move higher, and if we don't have a memory, Francisco Blanche of a hundred dollars a barrel, it's a terrific bull market in oil. And the vector, as Gartman would say, is from the lower left to the upper right. Why can't oil just drive higher based on a make the global economy a great again economy? Uh, it, it can, Tom. And, and, and I think one of the other issues that's popped out more recently is that even though we're seeing very strong growth in the U.S. and, and even in Canada, uh, we're starting to hit a lot of transportation bottlenecks here. So um, much of the much of the uh, supply that was expected to come from, from North America is getting clogged up in pipes. Uh, we've seen uh, differentials to uh, WTI in, in uh, shale basins like the Permian, uh, so the Midland, um, Prices have, have really uh, decoupled from prices uh, in other parts of the U.S. and around the world. Uh, same has happened for Western Canada prices. Um, and that, that's, I think, going to slow down investment a little bit. Um, so, so my sense is that, that we are very reliant on, on a U.S. infrastructure system that is, is quite clogged up. And, 
And at the same time, the cartel is getting closer to a deal on June 22nd, where they may either extend or at least keep a very, very close, uh, very tight grip on the oil market uh, because uh, Saudi Arabia needs it. And also now Russia, um, with with uh, the economic pressures they're facing, they're probably also going to be uh, leaning towards staying in the deal. So that, that's what's going on in oil. I, I look at the, the going on in oil, and I, I guess the money question, and John Farrell uh, is better at this than I am, is does it fold over into other commodities? Is oil discreet, or can Francisco Blanche go long Brazil this morning? <laughs> um, well, I mean, definitely oil, oil has uh, a lot of spillover effects. Um, and um, you know, to your to your point, there's going to be um, if if we do break above eighty bucks and start to see a more sustained rally, uh, that's going to have spillover effects. It's going gonna, gonna to move into other markets. Um, and and what's interesting about it is really that that um, we're seeing some of it already. Um, we've seen finally a recovery in some of the energy equities. Uh, we are seeing. Uh, moves in, in in the MLP sector. So even outside just the crude oil, right? Outside just the the outright crude oil price, we're starting to see other sectors reacting, and 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 that's because the back end of the price uh, of oil might might even move on on a forward basis uh, in in the next few weeks. Francisco, Francisco, there's this really interesting story in aluminium over the last couple of weeks. And it's an idiosyncratic event that Rusal has been sanctioned by the United States. And ultimately, it's raised huge concern about where the supply is going to come from. What are the base case? What is the base case for you guys now looking at the situation in aluminium? Well, so so first thing uh, you, you have to you have to uh, put in perspective is Rusal is about six percent of the global aluminum market, and that's uh, uh, and, and, and obviously that's uh, creating uh, pressure on the price. But, uh, but we, we already saw the first round of tariffs uh, adding pressure to aluminum risk premium. Um, and, and that was a direct effect of the, uh, of the tariff um, in the US. Now, obviously, we are seeing uh, a large chunk of the market being uh, carved out. So we do think aluminum could be going uh, to $3,000 a ton. Um, the pressure on the aluminum price is uh, directly proportional to the tariffs as well as to the, to the sanctions, right? So, um, so in, in, in our view, we're talking about one of the biggest players in the market. We're talking about uh, a large uh, portion of the supply side being pulled out. Can you imagine if we pulled out 6% of global oil supply? Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that would be, I mean, 6% of global oil supply is, is bigger than Iraq. Iraq is 4.5% of global oil supply, to put it into context. So, so this is a lot of a lot of aluminum, and, uh, and now aluminum is a much more common ingredient. There is some spare capacity. We're gonna probably restart uh, smelters in parts of the world that that um, had been shut down for a while. But that that's the story, right? And and um, and and you know the, the the politics have gotten in the way of, of aluminum here. Francisco Blanche, great to have you with us and to get that context and perspective. Head of Global Commodities and Derivatives Research for Merrill Lynch. Right now, 
Um, he is the pit bull terrier for the Bush family. John Sununu of New Hampshire. He is the mechanical engineer from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And uh, Mr. Sununu, uh, Governor Sununu, I can only say that you will always be 55 years old and protective of the Bush family uh, <laughs> instead of uh, your more August and retired view uh, right now. I want to go back to 1992 and where some will say Mrs. Bush salvaged the Bush campaign at a speech in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Mr. Bush was struggling with Mr. Buchanan. And uh, some would say Barbara Bush saved the day. What did she bring to the politics? Is George Herbert Walker Bush uh, tried to drag the Republican Party towards his Republican Party? Well, Barbara Bush uh, had a very good uh, political sense. Uh, she liked, I think, campaigning in New Hampshire. And uh, she, every time she came here, she seemed to connect directly with the voters. You know, we're a see-me-touch-me-feel-me kind of campaign state, and, and she was able to do that quite well. Um, you know, she was sort of uh, uh, very comfortable, and I think that comfortable conveyed a a uh, sense of warmth, and that sense of warmth uh, obviously went to the benefit of the president. There have been criticisms over the years of any number of families. We can take it back. You were not active in the John Adams administration, were you? I think that was even before. Uh, that's the first one. I was around for the second one. <laughs> you were around for Quincy Adams. But there's always talk about royal families of American politics. The Kennedys, of course, have been front and center in that debate. Were the Bushes, and was she the queen of a royal family? Well, you know, uh, they were strong believers in public service, and, and uh, it, it uh, was something that uh, they felt an obligation to. Um, they, they had an active life in the private sector, unlike a lot of the other so-called uh, dynasty families in American politics. Uh, all of them, uh, from the president who founded and was one of the early uh, founders and, and uh, certainly developed the great company, offshore drilling company Zapata Oil. Uh, Jeb certainly had a big private sector uh, life in, in Florida, and uh, George W., including ownership of the Texas Rangers. So they, they, as a family, were able to combine private sector, public sector involvement um, quite effectively. Uh, I, I really do think that uh, they all understood that they wanted to give a little bit back to the system. She certainly instilled that in the kids. Um, they they recognized her as the as the definer of what the family was like and uh, and uh, uh, responded to it. So I I, I think. Um, uh, although there was never any stated agenda, there was an implicit uh, you owe uh, the communities you live in, the com country you live in, uh, a, a little bit of payback, and, and public service was the mechanism of payback. Governor Sununu, uh, do you recall the first time that you met Barbara Bush? I think the first time uh, was probably in the 1980 campaign that was not successful for uh, the pres uh, the eventual president, George Bush, uh, but I don't remember it specifically, but I really got to know them extremely well after I was elected governor in 82, and, and he was vice president. Uh, and uh, 
they were smart enough to know that uh, if there's any uh, continued ambitions to be president, it is good to uh, develop a good relationship with the governor of New Hampshire. But we became very close friends while I was governor. Uh, my wife and I actually spent a couple of nights with them in the vice presidential residence in, in Washington and um, uh, at, guben at, at events for national governors and things like that. So we, we developed a very close friendship even before the 88 campaign. What was uh, what was uh, Barbara Bush like in uh, in in your relationship with her as the White House uh, chief of staff for uh, George H. Uh, w. Bush, serving in uh, eighty nine yeah. to ninety one? Yeah. Well, you remember historically there have been some tough relationships between chiefs of staffs and first lady, but I was very lucky. We had a a very good relationship. I think I think she obviously sensed that that uh, I was there to. Uh, have the president's back. She certainly felt uh, that was one of her responsibilities as well. And so we shared this mutual responsibility. And, and, and as a result, I think that helped bring us even closer together. There's a, a comment uh, that has been uh, published from uh, the late uh, Tim Russert, uh, having made a speech uh, quite a while ago, talking about uh, when you finally left uh, the White House of uh, President George H.W. Bush, uh, that um, she kind of was someone that you uh, confided in. I'm wondering if you could expand on that. Well, uh, she was someone I felt very close to, uh, and... Uh, when I was leaving, uh, we spent uh, two or three occasions talking about, uh, frankly, the good times we had had. Uh, I, I left uh, uh, really on a positive note. Uh, I had expected to last about six to nine months, which is what most chiefs of staff last. I lasted in the White House uh, a little over three years, and and um, it was very positive. We stayed close um, uh, during that transition, and, and we stayed close afterwards. In fact, uh, I came back to the White House a few times and played uh, Ross Perot in the mock debates, and every time I went back, uh, I spent a little time chatting with her. She she was the really the rock of the family, and even in the White House, she was uh, the rock the president counted on, and those were tough times in the 92 campaigns, and, and she was there uh, uh, as... as uh, stalwart as she had been in the 88 campaign. You mentioned uh, the role of the, the chief of staff, and I'm wondering if you could expand on your thoughts about the current uh, White House chief of staff and some of the issues uh, that Mr. Kelly's probably facing. Well, I haven't had any time to spend with General Kelly, so uh, I, 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 my, my analysis would only be through the press that I've seen, and frankly, uh, that means I probably don't have a real feeling for what's going on down there, so I'm going to pass on that. Okay. Uh, you are, have been credited with uh, being uh, part of a group of people that had recommended David Souter of uh, New Hampshire as appointment to the Supreme Court of, of the United States. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about that recommendation and the uh, subsequent uh, roles of uh, White House Chiefs of Staff uh, for those kinds of appointments? Yeah, if if you read my book, you'll actually get the real story. I actually ended up uh, supporting Edith Jones in the final selection. David Souter was a great uh, Supreme Court judge in New Hampshire and a terrible Supreme Court judge uh, when he got to Washington. Um, it, it, it It is a great example, in my opinion, of somebody who lives their life with a singular ambition, 
uh, and lives their life in order to achieve it. And and sometimes when you when they get there, the person that's at at the destination is different than the person that was perceived on the trip. And uh, it's one of the great disappointments uh, in my public life that that uh, David Souter ended up being as as uh, uh, really a different a Supreme Court judge than he sold. Uh, both the president and all the uh, lawyers that uh, that uh, vetted him for the president uh, in that process. Uh, Boyden Gray is certainly one of the great conservatives in Washington, and uh, he and his staff were all quite conservative. They were absolutely convinced, reading David Souter's New Hampshire decisions, uh, that this was going to be a good conservative judge, and it turned out otherwise. Want to thank you very much uh, for joining us, uh, former uh, Governor of New Hampshire uh, John Sununu, former White House Chief of Staff under President George H. W. Bush, uh, sharing his thoughts and memories of uh, Barbara Bush, uh, former First Lady and matriarch of the uh, Bush family. Uh, she died and was 92 years old. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.